All right, so we're going to start our lecture part in Hebrews chapter 8, and we're going to start reading in verse 7. And I'll just read the, from verse 7 down to verse 13, and then we will go back and discuss. So verse 7 says, For if that first covenant, he's talking about the Mosaic covenant, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he, being God, finds fault with it when he says, Behold, excuse me, he, for he, being God, finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is ready, or excuse me, is growing old and is ready to vanish away. Alright, so this question was already asked prior to the start of the recording. In verse 7, it seems like the first covenant was jacked up and the accusation could be made, well, God made a mistake. Well, where does the fault lie? In verse 8, where does God say he found fault? With the people. With the people. Right. The covenant itself that he made with them was not bad. And we're going to look at some verses in the New Testament where, where Paul says, no, the, the law was good. The fault with it was that the people broke that covenant. So for on the little handout there, for answer to question number one, the fault with the covenant was found in the people of Israel. The people of Israel. Now this passage I read, with the exception of verses 7 and the first part of 8 and verse 14, is all one long quote out of the book of Jeremiah. Does anybody know what, what chapter and what verse it starts on? 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. And so Jeremiah 31, 31, and all the way to verse 34. That's This is one of those passages that Christians need to understand Yes. for a couple of reasons. One is because it tells you that the what we call the new covenant, the covenant that we live under now, it was not a brand new idea. God had already planned for that 625 years prior to. It, it was always his intent to do this. And we'll, we'll look more at that in a second. The second reason is for apologetics. Because Christians are constantly attacked saying, well, you hold this to be true. And you say, because the Bible tells you this is true. However, you don't follow all of these Mosaic covenants Therefore, you have no authority to use the Bible to judge anyone else. You 
see the argument? If you're only, you can't just teach out of the new covenant if you don't listen to the old covenant too. You can't just dismiss the first two thirds of the book. And they, they accuse of hypocrisy is what it is. So you need to understand why the Bible says what it says, what the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant means for us today living under the new covenant. So Jeremiah 31, 31, and you can, not that most people will ever give you the time of day if you're actually arguing with them, but if you show them in the Bible, the new covenant was spoken of way back then, and here's what the Bible says about that old covenant. We'll get into that in a second. So question number two, under verses 8 and 9, this is the longest Old Testament quotation in the New Testament. The single longest Old Testament quotation found in the New Testament. And of course, we already said it comes from Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was written between the years of 627 B.C. and 562 B.C. So Jeremiah started prophesying as a young man, and he continued until he was quite old. Now, does anybody know what significant event happened during the ministry of Jeremiah? What's that? What was that again? The significant historical event that occurred during the ministry of Jeremiah. So looking between the years 627 and 562. The um, Babylon came and Yes, Babylon, the Babylonian exile. exile. So now starting with Moses, Moses led the people out of Egypt. They ended up wandering around the desert for 40 years because they were constantly complaining and didn't trust God. Moses died, Joshua leads them into the promised land, and he begins to conquest. And God says, I need you to drive all these people out, completely subdue this land, because if you don't, then those inhabitants will teach you to you know, worship their gods and all this stuff. But of course, the Israelites don't do that. And sure enough, what God had warned would happen, happen. did. And this is where you get this 400-year period of the judges, where Israel is good until Joshua dies and his lieutenants die, and then the people fall into idolatry. God says, well, okay, I'm going to punish you. And he allows them to fall into captivity by one of the foreign invaders. Well, then people say, oh, God, we're so sorry. Please forgive us. God raises up a judge who delivers them. And then Israel is good until that judge dies. And then the cycle repeats over and over. Well, eventually the people cry out for what? A king. They, we want a king. And God says, you don't want a king? Yes, we do. No, you don't. He'll be a jerk. We want, us a, we want a king. Give us a king. So God says, fine, here's Saul. And Saul was biggest jerk as he was advertised to be. So Saul you know, screws up repeatedly. He's unfaithful. God says, you're done. I'm removing you and your entire bloodline from serving as capacity of king, and I'm going to put David in there. David becomes king. His son Solomon becomes king after him. And after Solomon, Rehoboam becomes king. And Rehoboam is this very prideful, arrogant young man. And when he is asked by the ten northern tribes to please lower their taxes, because your father taxed us to death, we please lower them, he says, no, I'm going to double the taxes. So the ten northern tribes do what? Rebel. They rebel. They form their own kingdom. You have the nation of Israel in the north, the kingdom of Judah in the south. And Judah is made up of Judah and Benjamin and some of the Levites. Well, the kingdom of north, God promised Jeroboam 
that I will make you king of the north, and I will establish your family forever as long as you can hold fast to but my God, laws. God told Solomon that he was going to do that anyways. He was going to do it because he was marrying uh, yes. the Egyptians and all that, and he yes, he was Solomon set the groundwork. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He he wasn't. He was a very wise, smart, stupid man. Yeah, it's un unbelievable. <laughs> you can do a psychological study on just Solomon, and for someone. Only some of that smart could be that dumb. You ever heard that expression? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that, that's Solomon. So the kingdom split. Jeroboam gets the same promises for him as, the, as David got. Well, immediately the entire northern kingdom goes into idolatry. And just for the next couple of hundred years, they're just absolute horrible men. And, and everyone who sits on the throne is terrible. And God punishes them, captivity in Assyria. Syria just comes in, smashes and destroys, deports them all throughout their empire, and they're gone. Well, God preserves Judah for a little bit because they have a few righteous kings. But eventually they have wicked king after wicked king, and Jeremiah comes on the scene, and he starts prophesying that you need to stop, you need to stop, you need to repent, and eventually the message changes to, it's too late, God is going to punish you, Babylon's coming. And when they come, do not fight against them. Yeah, it's it's yeah. yeah, do not fight against them. Well, if you're the king of Israel, you don't, don't want to hear that. Basically, Jeremiah was accused of aiding and abetting and giving comfort to the enemy. Like, you can't do that. So, of course, they prepare and they, they fight against Babylon. And exactly what Jeremiah warned about happened. Babylon just smashes them three times, to be exact. And it's during this time that Solomon's temple was completely annihilated burned to the ground, the whole city raised, and a bunch of the children were deported, the first group, from Jerusalem up to Babylon. This is where you get the story of Daniel. And at some point in this, Jeremiah dies and his ministry ends. Don't know exactly what year, but we know that the last event recorded was 562 B.C. That's how we get our dates, for it's written between that time. So that, that's where we are with Jeremiah. Mike, you know, one of the, one of the fascinating things from from Jeremiah's account of the siege of Jerusalem is that he's in, they threw him in, a, in like a cistern mm -hmm. during the final portion of the siege and, 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 you know, he's an enemy of the state for all intents and purposes. But when, when Jerusalem falls and, you know, and of course Nebuchadnezzar gouges out the king's eye, kills his kids and then gouges out his eyes and marches them off to captivity. What was fascinating about that is that Nebuchadnezzar pulls him out of the cistern, puts the captain of his guard in charge of his personal safety and well-being, feeds and clothes him, and treats him with, with great respect and honor. Nebuchadnezzar does this, and he's this is clearly before Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. Mm -hmm. But that it's a fascinating contrast between how you, the king who sits on the yes. throne of David treats God's prophet versus this un, uncircumcised, unwashed Philistine who just conquered yeah. David's city. Horrible pagan guy who's shown... You know the willingness to commit absolute cruel <laughs> acts mm -hmm. just to establish authority. Yeah, very, very, very good point. So, it's during this time Judah was exiled to Babylon. How long were they there? Seventy years. Seventy years. Seventy years. As as prophesied, like this is going to last an extended period of time. God's judgment's coming, but it has its limits. Mm -hmm. Okay, because the promise of deliverance from that was already there. You're going to be punished for 70 years, but I will bring you back here. All right, so when, so number five, God's mentioning both the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's because of the divided kingdom. There's going to be some sort of reconciliation there. 
between the two. Because not when Assyria conquered the northern kingdom, you ever heard mention of the lost ten tribes of Israel? And all kinds of crazy conspiracies have gone all around <laughs> about who the lost They're ten the English, tribes. we know that. They're the English. Just, just they're say the it. Native Americans. They're them too. They're, they're the both. Aborigines. I mean, they're just whatever you just pick something that everybody has claimed, oh, we're them. They came over and they, they started the city of, um, that Moroni eventually visited and the gold tablets and Joseph. Oh, yeah, 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 oh, yeah. yeah all kinds of crazy stuff. But a lot of the people from there fled to Judah during the Assyrian, so all the 12 tribes are still preserved. That's a footnote. All right. So what a pe- I, I made a joke about this. I can't remember if when the recording started or not. But people used to say that you know, the God of the New Testament supplanted the God of the Old Testament. Well, slightly less heretical than that was in the Old Testament, you were saved by obeying the law. Salvation was works-based, and now it's by faith. Of course, that that is easily refuted, and we're going to look at that a little bit. Um, That's point six. This is a quote from the book I read. So the main difference between the Old and the New Covenant is not a theological dichotomy between law and grace. So it's not saying you were saved by the law and now you're saved by grace. That, that's not what the Bible is about. That's not how it was at all. So in verse 7, they're still quoting from Jeremiah, God talks about when I led the people out of bondage from Egypt, that itself was an act of grace. And if we see that Exodus as a, as a foreshadowing of what Christ does for us, mm-hmm. as Moses led the people, as an act of grace, out of captivity in Egypt to the promised land, so God rescues us, as an act of grace, from slavery to sin into the promised land, of course, the better promised land. Now, how do we know that people have always been saved by faith? What person have we talked about a lot in the book of Hebrews? <laughs> Abraham. Yes. Abraham's the main one. Because when Abraham received those promises 450 something years before the law came, he says, I will prom- I will give you a name, a nation, descendants, uh, bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. It says Abraham believed God. And that belief is what counted as righteousness. So salvation has always been by faith. By faith in whatever that person had been revealed by God. Mm-hmm. Abraham was not given that much compared to what we have. But what he was shown, he believed it, and he believed it wholeheartedly. And several places in Hebrews, even what we haven't covered, is going to just talk about how great of an example Abraham's faith is for us. And also, Abraham gets a, gets his, gets a, a, a big unconditional covenant whereas Israel didn't get an unconditional covenant by any means they did not and that's why the fault lay with the people and not the covenant itself is good mm-hmm. the covenant's fine in fact that's number eight the people of Israel broke the covenant that's why a new one was needed it's not because God screwed up it's because the people of Israel screwed it up so let's look at a couple of verses where where Paul discusses this because a lot of people will take Paul and just use it to for lack of a better term bash the Old Covenant and bash the Old Testament so let's look at Romans chapter 7 verse 12 
If I could get somebody to read that out loud for me. Romans chapter 7, verse 12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now that does not sound like Paul bashing <laughs> the, old, the Old Testament, does it? In fact, quite the opposite. He's extolling the virtues. Holy, good, righteous. Right? 1 Timothy 1.8. We're going to just read the first half of that. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Right. We know that the law is what? Good. good. It's good. There is nothing wrong, evil, bad about the covenant that God made with Israel. But the fault lay with the people who broke it, not with the God who made it. All right, there's one psalm in the Old Testament where the, this entire theme is about how awesome the law of God is. Anybody know what psalm that is? Amy Grant made a song out of it. You got like 150 to pick from. There's that. <laughs> psalm 119. Anybody turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Psalm 119. I don't want you to look up Psalm chapter 1, verse 19. No, but... Yeah. We'll read it. You'll see the Amy Grant song. That's the one that's like... A billion pages long? Three long. Oh, yeah, yeah. Psalm 119, yeah, that's super long. We're not going to read the whole chapter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay, well, I thought you said the whole psalm was about... Well, the whole psalm is about the goodness of God. We're going to read a couple of sections of the goodness of God's law, right? Extolling the virtues of it. We're going to read a couple of sections of it. And, what, and as we read these, pay attention to all the different words used. It all means the law, but the author of Hebrews had a thesaurus next to him, so he didn't have to keep using the word law. All right, so Psalm 119, uh, verses 9 through 16. I read a lot. Let's take turns. I'll read verse 9, and then Kayla, you can read verse 10. 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and I'll finish at 16. All right. All right. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgment of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. All right, so the very first question is, how can a young man keep his way pure? Of all the temptations out there in the world, how can a young man hope to possibly maintain a pure life? By guarding it according to his word. Yes. So if the law was was bad, then 
why does God preserve Psalm 119 for us today to read about how good it was? Right? And in verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart. Why? I won't wonder from you. I'm not going to sin. So the law is good. Now, what are some of the, uh, besides law, we got commandments. What other words are used? Testimonies. Testimonies. Precepts. Precepts. Rules. Rules. Statutes. statutes. All of this, just all-encompassing, the word of God is good. All right, so let's look at the next one. Look in uh, verse 105. This is the Amy Grant song. All right, I'll start and we'll just read it again. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Except I pray the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your judgment. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your laws. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Right. So here again, we just see how your word is a lamp to my feet. Everybody knows that Amy Grant song? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. I'm not going to sing it, <laughs> but it's there. I'm not going to. I don't know. <clears throat> <laughs> What's the tune? Oh, uh, my wife is here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Mike is a musician. Let's yeah. not forget. Yeah. I'll, I'll play it on the trumpet later. <laughs> All right. Did you try it back on? Yes. Actually, okay. I think I was. I think it got me singing on the recording. Rats. Oh. <laughs> so here we just have another long passage, and the entire chapter is this about just how great the law of God is. In fact, the law showed people what sin was. Like you can't know not to covet if you don't read, Thou shalt not covet. So the law told people what sin was. So let's go um, in verse 10 of Hebrews. Back to uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. And for time's sake, somebody read verse 10 for me. So I'm just going to look, look up these other verses. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. All right, so this idea of writing the law on their hearts, this is, the author is using that passage because the Jews would have known. Now, the Jews memorized long passages of Scripture. I mean, they, you could say, hey, tell us about the Passover, and they would just rattle off verbatim everything you need to know about the Passover. Give me a prayer for the morning. They got a long passage of scripture memorized. Evening prayer. They just had all this stuff memorized. So this language of writing the word on their heart, um, in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 3, it says, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them, this being the words of God, around your neck. Write them on the tablets of your heart. 
And in Proverbs 7, 3, now this is Solomon, another guy we already spoke about. Again, talking about the words of wisdom, God's commandments. He says, bind them on your fingers and write them on the tablet of your heart. So this is language that's used throughout the Old Testament. And this just means you need to internalize the word of God. It's not just enough to memorize and have this head knowledge. To write it on your heart means it's going to start having an effect on you. Yeah, your, your behavior, it affects your attitude. It affects everything about you. It's not just intellectual knowledge. It's bringing forth fruit of, of your faith. And this, I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is mentioned in Genesis 17, 7 with Abraham. It's mentioned in Exodus 6, 7 uh, with Moses. And let's all look at Revelation 21, 3. Louise, were you going to say something? No, I was saying that in Joshua, it was, God is telling him to meditate in his word day and night. Mm-hmm. Same concept of yep. what you were talking about. Yep. Right, Revelation 21.3. Of course, this is talking about the new heaven and the new earth. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. So it's not verbatim, I will be their God and they will be my people. But it's the exact same idea. So the promise that started way back, in Genesis 17, 7, is now finally fulfilled in Revelation 21, 3. All right, so let's read back to Hebrews, verse 11 and 12. Someone who hasn't read much, read verse 11 and 12. Actually, there's only six of you, so everybody's read a little bit. They shall not teach each one his neighbor. Each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, for the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. All right. So one of the primary differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant was under the Old Covenant, the sacrifices that were made over and over and over and over. And they never actually solved the problem of sin. There was no permanent forgiveness of sin. Because if there were... Well, they could have stopped making the sacrifices. But instead, those sacrifices were a reminder of the sin. Every year, you're reminded, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, my whole nation's a sinner, and we got to keep doing this forever to appease God. And so I'm going to read this quote. This is the uh, ESV expository, com- expository Commentary. And I thought this was a particularly good chapter, or this paragraph, rather. Speaking on these these verses here, let's see, make sure I read the right page, 656. The primacy of relationship. Actually, I'm going to back up one. Since the old covenant could be broken by disobedience, the new covenant will impart a greater ability to obey, as Jeremiah 31-34 will shortly explain. The result will be the kind of covenant relationship that Yahweh has always sought with his people. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Here and elsewhere in the Bible, and we looked at some of those, 
the notion of a covenant in the Old Testament is more of a familiar relationship than a legal contract. The primacy of relationship is why the former need for the people to exhort one another, hey, know the Lord, will be superseded by Yahweh's fresh promise that they shall all know him from the least to the greatest. The possibility of knowing Yahweh was always the goal of the Old Covenant, but the fact that that covenant was breakable meant that his sinful people could easily become estranged from him. Precisely here lies the newness of the New Covenant, when Yahweh will forgive the sins of his people, which keep them from knowing him. That is, lasting forgiveness from God is the mark of the New Covenant, or excuse me, is not the mark of the New Covenant, but its enabler, so that all people may know Yahweh as the Old Covenant intended, but sin prevented it from being able to do. That was a mouthful. But the, the primary thing that I wanted to mark out, I should have written this down as one of the questions, is that lasting forgiveness from God is not the mark of the new covenant, but its enabler. So what kept the old covenant from being able to allow people to truly know God and to truly serve him the way they should? It was their sin. Because the old covenant did not fully deal with sin. The new covenant does that, enabling us to fully serve God the way we always, God always intended. Yes. Yes. I mean, to your point, the purpose of the sacrifice was, was it, it didn't actually appease sin. Mm -hmm. It just, it was intended to remind you continuously that you were a sinner. Uh, um, and so I'm going to go to Hosea first. Um, okay. Uh, Hosea 6, uh, 6, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the sacrifice is supposed to remind you of where you're standing before a three times holy God. And of course, Jesus paraphrases that um, uh, in Matthew 9, 13. Go and learn what this means. He talked to the Pharisees. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Yep. And mercy is a function of understanding who you are and how much mercy you've been shown that you're not a grief spot right now. And um, Yeah, excellent point. Excellent point. All right, verse 13. We got five minutes, we're good. All right, and speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. All right, it should have been what adjective, not, not two adjectives. So what adjective does the author use to describe the old the old covenant there? Starts with an O. Obsolete. Obsolete. <laughs> obsolete. All right, and what is what is it currently doing and what is about to happen to it? Right. right now, it is growing old, and it's getting ready to completely vanish away. Right? Completely vanish away. So again, it's not that the old covenant was in any way bad. It was just the people broke it. That is why the new covenant was necessary. And it was something that God had been planning for. It's not something that you know, caught him off guard. No. All right. So we're finished in Galatians chapter 3. Going back to Paul. Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. 
So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So here's, and that whole chapter, actually all chapter 3 and 4 of Galatians are really good about understanding the relationship of the law and its purpose and its fulfillment in Christ. But I thought those were the most pertinent to our lesson today. So how was life described as under the law in these passages? What were we held as? Captive. Captive. So life under the law is described as being in captivity mm -hmm. and being imprisoned. Right. So that's not good. That's not fun. That's not, that's not how you want to be. And how is the law described? Like what, what was it in relation to the people until Christ came? What role did it serve? Tutoring. As a tutor or a guardian. Anybody else have a different translation? Guardian. You have guardian? So the idea being is your father is rich. He can afford a private tutor or a guardian to help teach his son. To prepare to take over the estate because dad's too busy running it. The guardian, that tutor, is in charge of teaching that kid what he needs to know, preparing to the time of maturity when he can assume the responsibilities of a son. So in that way, the law that people were living under for so long was preparing them for the coming Messiah. The whole point was you should be looking forward to the cessation of all these laws, all these rigid commandments you have to follow, all these sacrifices. You should have been anticipating the Messiah. And a lot of Jews were anticipating the Messiah when Jesus came on the scene. All right. And according to this verse, how are we justified? Faith. By faith. And we already saw how Abraham was justified by faith. So in the Old Covenant was by faith. In the New Covenant by faith. It has always been by faith. And verse number four, uh, question number four. If we are Christ, then we are whose offspring? Abraham's. And what position do we hold? Heirs. Heirs, according to the promise. So how are we, in this room, heirs of Abraham's promise? Well, we have his faith, but I don't see a great nation. I don't see, I don't have a great name. I, I, I'm not living over in Egypt, or not Egypt, in Israel. So how are we heirs? What what promise? Yeah, name, nation, descendants. The blessings. And there was one other sentence that God said to Abraham. And in you, all nations, all nations will be blessed. That is how we come into that picture. We are blessed because of Abraham's faith, not because of the Mosaic Covenant, but because of Abraham's faith. That set the chain reaction. So those of us who have put our hope and faith in Christ, who have been called into a right relationship with him, 
we are sharing in that inheritance and Christ fulfilled yes all of that yeah. all of that is is an off the wall question but the name part as since we're heirs the name part uh, is that because like in Revelation we get a new name maybe I don't know uh, I always thought it's because Abraham is famous and two major world religions still trace their lineage back to him because mm -hmm. Muslims see themselves as as the heirs of Abraham. Yeah, I mean, the three largest religions in the world all have Abraham as an important person, yeah. So Abraham definitely got a great name. Yeah, for sure. And there was a literal fulfillment in the nation part, nation of Israel. Dude did have a lot of descendants. Lots and lots. He was blessed, and those who blessed Israel were blessed. Those who cursed Israel were cursed. But all of that was a temporal, immediate fulfillment. The greater ultimate fulfillment, like what most of Hebrew talks about, is the heavenly city, the new heaven, the new earth. That's that's the greater nation, the spiritual descendants, the the blessing that comes through Christ, and ultimately, all the nations of the earth being blessed, not just his physical descendants. One big Abrahamic family reunion. Yes, it will be. <laughs> All right, anybody have any closing questions, thoughts, or snide remarks at this time? Um, one thing that it just hit me a year ago. So I've been a believer since I was 27, so um, about 25 about years. About three years? Yeah, about three years ago. <laughs> um, but it only hit me, I, I think it was about seven, or eight, seven months ago or so, but I was um, looking at the Old Covenant and looking at the Mosaic Covenant. But the fact of the matter that Moses didn't get to the Promised Land, mm. and it was almost like he couldn't. Like, we couldn't have Moses in the Promised Land because of what he represented with the Mosaic Covenant and the Old Covenant. Mosaic Covenant gets you close, but not... Not there. No. And not You're there is still infinitely yeah. far. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you are not making it to not... Yeah, so I was like, wow. I never, never thought about that. <laughs> yeah, me either, <laughs> up to about seven <laughs> months ago. <laughs> and it hit me, like, wow. Almost, yeah. but... Mm. Yeah. I always yeah. thought about that, like, wow. After all those 40 years, and he could, he saw it, mm -hmm. and God told him, are you going to see it, but you're but not you ain't going. Doing it. You, can't, yep. you can't go. On the flip side, he didn't get to watch them just be knuckleheads in the promised land. Okay. Yeah, too. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, in that case, we will dismiss, and I'll see you guys next week.